sports are one of the few areas that we can look at within American society and point to a group that can make transformational change very quickly. As I think about the NFL and the Rooney rule, it's really well designed to make substantive changes. But unless the ownership group comes out and says, this is a priority for us, the best intended policy just isn't going to work. DEI in its most fundamental place where we had really a fight for civil rights within our country, this wasn't the government making these substantial changes. And so for those individuals who are at universities that it's, hey, the leadership isn't showing me this change, you can be the change yourself. This is the Work in Sports Podcast. Here's VP of Content and Engage Learning at WorkinSports.com, Brian Clapp. Wouldn't it be nice if progress was a straight line? The idea that you could determine the importance of something, set out to impact it, and then from there on out, it's a straight climb to success. Diversity hiring is a problem. Let's institute a new program. Problem solved. Onward and upward. Unfortunately, progress is much more nuanced than that. It is filled with steps backward and sideways and ideally forwards, but it is messy and frustrating. I'm not here to preach or tell you how you should feel, but I feel, me, I feel, the lawsuit filed against the NFL by former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores is heartbreaking. I do not know the intent of the Giants, the Broncos, the Dolphins, or the NFL at large. And that is what makes this subject so hard to unpack. Even though these organizations have hired minority leaders over their history, that does not mean that their hiring practices today and processes today are without flaw. It just means this topic is more nuanced than good and evil. It is a spectrum. But there are systemic patterns and facts that are undeniable. They are not subjective and they are not as nuanced. Since the Rooney Rule was instituted in 2003, only 29 of 131 head coaching vacancies, around 21%, have been filled by minorities in a league where 70% of the players are black. There are currently five minority head coaches in the NFL, Mike Tomlin, Ron Rivera, Robert Sala, and the recently hired Mike McDaniel and Lovey Smith. That's an embarrassing number, period, full stop. I can't tell you these teams and leagues and organizations are full of racists, but it's evident there is a flaw in the system. I've heard many people blame the Rooney Rule, and this confuses me. Before the Rooney Rule went into effect, coaches of color were hired about 2% of the time, according to Cyrus Merry, a civil rights lawyer who helped author the Rooney Rule's language and co-founded the Fritz Pollard Alliance. After the rule, he said, the rate of coaches of color hired rose to 20%. Is the Rooney rule to blame? No. It seems like there is some progress there. Not perfect, but progress. I've heard it repeated more than once. The Rooney rule makes teams go through these fraudulent check-the-box interviews and is setting everyone up to fail and look foolish. I'd like to inform these people the Rooney rule does not say, fake some interviews just to cover your ass. The fault isn't with the rule, it's with the people executing it. I'd also like to ask these same people, if these organizations are setting up fake interviews with minority candidates just to satisfy the rule, you think it would be better without it? Without the Rooney rule, then they would decide to entertain minority candidates of their own free will. That's flawed logic. I'm not buying it. 
the fact there are now five minority head coaches and five minority GMs is not good enough. I know. But progress is never really fast enough or good enough. This is a hard subject to parse, which brings us back to the overarching concept of progress and its crooked line nature. Look at the NBA. The league averaged just five black head coaches per season from 1990 to 2000. In 2022, there are 13, which is 43% of the league's head coaches. Again, I don't know what good enough is, but I'd like to think that's progress. I'll be completely honest and transparent. These conversations can be uncomfortable, but they are important. We booked today's guest, Dr. Chris Brown, Senior Associate Athletic Director for DE&I at the University of Delaware. And I was personally incredibly nervous leading up to the conversation because it is nuanced, because it is difficult, because it is uncomfortable. But I have to tell you, if we're going to enjoy the journey of progress, however difficult it may be, we all have to be okay with some discomfort. And lucky me, Chris is one of the most amazing people I've ever had the chance to speak with. And this is one of the best interviews we've ever conducted. Please welcome Dr. Chris Brown to the show. Dr. Chris Brown, I am so excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining the show. Hey, Brian. Thanks for allowing me to join. Happy to talk to you and discuss some pretty important topics. These are really important topics. And as you and I were discussing before we started recording, these are the kind of topics we want to elevate. We want to amplify. We want to have an open and honest discussion. And that's where I feel like we can serve our audience really well. So I'm so thankful for you joining us. Let's just dive right in. Five to 10 years ago, I've been in the sports industry for a long time. Five to 10 years ago, we didn't say the terms diversity, equity, and inclusion. It wasn't a topic that was out there and discussed. And now it's more commonplace. So we are seeing that emphasis and the intention. But does it feel like we're making progress or is real change kind of still feeling a snail's pace kind of slow? Yeah, I think that's a great observation. You know, I broke into the sport industry about 10 years ago. And so I very vividly remember that, hey, no one was talking about DEI work. It just wasn't a part of our conversation, especially yeah. within the sport, within the collegiate sport yeah. industry. But, you know, in the past, really maybe two or three years with a particular emphasis on the summer of 2020, we've seen a lot of change, a lot of movement. I think kind of getting to your direct question regarding are things really changing at a rapid pace? Are we kind of moving slow? I think at the end of the day, when it comes to DEI work in general, it's always been a slow build. It's yeah. something that you, if you get into equity and DEI work, you shouldn't necessarily get into it with the understanding or expectation that, hey, we're going to make all these changes within a year and everything is going to look substantially different than it did prior to someone being appointed. But, you know, I, I think it's a little bit of both. At the end of the day, we've seen some areas change within the sports landscape that I couldn't have imagined. Yeah. You know, we've seen DEI really take the forefront in some pretty instrumental changes across the board, whether it be, I mean, Mississippi changing their state flag is something that I, growing up, never thought that I would see happen. And within the course of a couple of months, it happened. And so we're seeing some of these pretty big, substantial changes. If you look at what's going on in Major League Baseball with Kim Ng's appointment with the, the Marlins, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty substantial shift within the sports landscape. So I think we're seeing a lot of big changes, 
but it's going to take a lot more time to have really across the board changes to where uh, in an ideal world, it's we won't have these stories that really stick out because, hey, we're used to having a woman be a GM for a major league baseball team. It's not going to really stick out because that's commonplace and something that we've acknowledged as society is just normal. So it really is a a bit of both. It's sometimes it's just going to be really slow change. It's something that as a DEI professional, you're working consistently and knowing that's incremental progress that's going to make the long-term change. But I think there are quite a few examples where the sport world has really stepped up and we made some big changes already. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else we can do. It's so important to recognize that because sometimes our world can feel so divided and you can see these moments that feel so disheartening or these things that happen that just make you feel like, why are we still having this happen? And yet it's so important to balance that out, like you're saying, with those moments of progress, with those really tangible things that are different and changing. So it's it's progress is, you know, two steps forward, one step back. And that's something we have to sometimes be okay with. As you enter this new role. So you are at the University of Delaware now, my alma mater, uh, with a new title, Senior Associate Athletic Director for DE&I. How would you articulate your mandate? What is your goal when you come into this position? It's a newly formed position. I mean, I would think it's like boiling the ocean. There's so much to do. Uh, How would you articulate where your approach is going to be? Yeah, it's definitely been like drinking out of a fire hydrant. I mean, it's a whole lot to take in in a very short amount of time. But as I think about what my role really entails, it's setting that strategic vision for DEI within the University of Delaware's athletics department, but also within our recreation services department and more broadly across the university campus. And so as I think about my charges and really my mandates, it's being that strategic leader and making sure that we have a vision for DEI. And then we take that vision and we develop a strategic plan. And so that's something that is, once again, kind of going back to our previous question, is a lot of time. It's something that's going to take a lot of investment in getting to know the University of Delaware community. You know, I came here from the University of Kansas, had never lived on the East Coast, let alone Delaware. And so it's a big learning curve for me getting to understand what are the pain points on our campus? Not every university is going to have the exact same issues as it relates to DEI. So really spending the next couple of months getting to know people, getting to know where the pressure points are on campus and getting to know where those pressure points are within the greater Newark community as well. As we think about kind of steps that we want to move forward, it's making sure that DEI is a part of every single conversation and every single decision that we make within the department. You know, we can look at countless examples in college athletics where there have been decisions made and there's been a reactive kind of approach to, oh, well, we missed this. Hey, we took a look at our salaries and they weren't balanced. Yeah. I want to get us to a place where every decision that we make has DEI top of mind so that we don't have to be reactionary. We can be those leaders and be in the forefront of making these changes. And so it's something that's going to take quite a while. It's going to be a lot of listening and really trying to understand prior to being understood. But it's something that I feel pretty confident in, especially given our leadership here within the department. It's really impressive to hear your approach to it because you can get into the tactics really quick. Like, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. And then you're just scattered everywhere to sit back and say, I want to listen. I want to understand. And I want to strategize just makes so much sense to me. So I'm, I'm really enthused to hear you say that. I, I interviewed Scott O'Neill, who was the CEO of the ownership group of the Sixers and Devils last year. And we were talking a lot about DEI because he's at the top of the chain. You know, he's establishing the culture. He's making decisions for the organization. And he said, and I really resonated with this, he said, it's not enough for organizations just to hire a DEI person and say, okay, great. We did that job. 
problem solved, you have to give them the power to make decisions and affect change, which makes so much sense to me. I have no idea what the power structure is at the University of Delaware, but given the power to make the change that you want to see, what would you prioritize? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that's an astute observation. At the end of the day, you can have a title, you can have a position, but if you don't have any real influence, then you can't really move the needle forward very much. In terms of, let's say, if I was just in charge for a day and could do whatever I wanted, you know, the first emphasis is on our primary constituent, and that's our student athletes. It's making sure that they have a positive experience both within our department, but even outside of our department within the greater university setting. You know, within college athletics in particular, we have probably the most diversity that you're going to see on a university campus, especially being at a predominantly white institution. So I'd be looking to make as many changes as possible to ensure that our student athletes feel that they have the support that they need, that they can show up and be their authentic selves at the university, because all that's going to do is allow for them to be more successful, both in the athletics realm, but most importantly, and why we all work within college athletics, to be themselves and transcend and have success as soon as they step but off of the Newark campus. And so I'd really be focusing on making sure that I'm meeting their needs. And so the idea of sitting down, where have there been pressure points where you haven't felt comfortable within the department? Where have there been incidences where this hasn't necessarily felt right? And how can we fix those and provide an open environment where you feel comfortable sharing those so we as administrators can make those changes? I think taking that a step further, going back to this idea of a university's athletics department really being one of your primary sources for diversity is then taking a step forward to make sure, okay, when you leave this amazing Bob Carpenter Center, the Whitney Athletic Center, wherever the case may be, and you step foot on campus, are you having a positive experience? Do you feel as though you've been included? Are your opinions, the statements that you make mattered? How are your interactions with the primary and general student population? And so really working to make changes to make it a more inclusive environment across the board, whether you're within the athletics facility or sitting within your chemistry class, knowing that you belong and are welcome at the university setting. You know, shifting a little bit to more outside of the student athlete realm, then it's looking at our coaches and staff. You know, I'm sure we'll talk about this later on, but at the end of the day, we don't necessarily have a lot of diversity in terms of administration and coaching at the highest levels in college athletics. And so it's been well documented. There are countless reports, articles. It's almost on an annual basis. You can count it like clockwork that these are areas we haven't made the growth that we need to make. And so it's stepping in and finding ways to influence that change to make sure that once again, 10, 15 years from now, it's not a big story when we have a Kim Ng get hired. It's, nope, this is what we do as a society because we're a well-functioning society who creates opportunities for folks who are deserving to achieve those lengths of success. So those are really, as I think about and get excited about diversity, equity, inclusion, that's the change that I think about. It might be a little bit esoteric, a lot of very much high level, but maybe I'm naive, but I think it can happen. No, I think it's exciting to hear you say it and the energy and passion you say it with. I have to laugh, though, when you mentioned chemistry class. I literally had a flashback to taking chemistry at University of Delaware. Had a little bit of anxiety there for a second, remembering some of those tests. So that was tough. But uh, we we partnered with Hashtag Sports to cover their Creators of Color series. So they run a, a series to elevate and amplify creators in the sports space who are identify as minorities. And in those conversations, one of the questions I asked was much like that, where I said, if given the power, what would you do with it in order to affect positive change? And you heard that a lot. Opportunity, education, you know, just listening and opening up and, and really having these 
structural changes start to take place. And, and that's encouraging to know there's so much alignment in the vision towards the future. As I think about your role, I also think there has to be a major educational standpoint that comes from, from it too. Over the years, we've heard a lot of pro athletes, when they get to the pros, their Twitter feed may come back to bite them when they were younger. I can remember specifically Josh Allen from the Buffalo Bills having something that got elevated that he had done years prior that was racially insensitive and having to walk it back, apologize to teammates, do a whole mea culpa. In your role, how much is it to work with these young men and women who are just that they're young and they don't have a ton of experience or they may not have ex been exposed to a lot of diversity and different types of people. How much do you have to just work with them on individual levels to help them understand tolerance and inclusion? Yeah, it's a lot. And, and it's yeah. important work. I mean, if we think about it, first and foremost, at that young of an age, it's you're molded by the experiences that you've had. But depending on those experiences, you might not have been exposed to DEI. That doesn't mean that you're a bad person. That doesn't mean that you have bad intention. But it means that it's on us as the administrators to ensure that you have those opportunities to receive that education. First and foremost, we want to take it out of the context of even sport. These young people are going to go on to be great leaders in industries, maybe within sport, maybe outside of sport. And so we need to make sure that they're equipped with the tools to be able to work with a number of different people, not just individuals who come from their same background. And so I view it as instrumental in terms of trying to advance our mission, and that's to provide a quality student-athlete experience to ensure that when you leave the university, you know how to interact with a diverse group of people. Not only do you know how to interact, but you want to to engage, you see the value in diversity, equity, inclusion. To take yeah. that a step further, as we think about sport, sports are one of the few areas that we can look at within American society and point to a group that can make transformational change very quickly. As mm -hmm. much as I'd like to think that Dr. Chris Brown can go out and just say something and society will go, oh, sounds great. I know that's not the reality. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> that, Brian. But let LeBron James say it and People listen a little bit more. And so as I think about the leadership within our university, our student athletes are the change on campus. Yeah. They're the leaders. And so if they buy into DEI, if they have the support, if they have the education that they need, they can move the needle far faster than administrators can. There is always, and there are countless examples of athletes who have done that, athletes who can move the needle forward and make sure that we're advancing as a society. And so, you know, I view that as one of the highest priorities to make sure that we're positioning our young people to be on, able to take on these challenges, both on campus, when they leave the university as well. I love doing this podcast because we directly reach the younger audience and can help frame them for the, for the experiences that are to come, right? Like get them ready for what's to come. And so engaging these conversations like you're doing and being able to get that one-on-one -on -one or that interaction where you can help set them up for success, give them some pictures on the world. I just, it feels like the best work we could do. And so I'm, I'm so glad you shared that. Let's pivot to some broader equity issues. Um, in college athletics, West Coast Conference Commissioner Gloria Navarez, who has been on this show before and is a absolutely wonderful woman with great plans. And I loved her story of, of becoming the first Latino commissioner in college athletics in Division One. Great stuff. They implemented the Russell Rule, requiring each member institution to include a member of traditionally underrepresented communities in the pool of final candidates for every athletic director, senior administrator, head coach, full-time assistant coach position. Sounds great to me. But let's use past experience 
In 2003, the NFL adopted the Rooney Rule, which does something similar. Mm. Minority candidates have to be considered for head coaching positions. Here we are in 2022. There are two minority head coaches, Ron Rivera and Mike Tomlin. I love the intention of a mandate like this, but do they work? What is the best way to make real change? Is that the best way to make real change? I'll throw it at you. Yeah. So I'll start off by saying huge fan of Gloria Navarez. We've had the opportunity to work together within the Knight Commission work that I've been doing more That's recently. Cool. And I mean, tremendous leader. And she's doing a lot of great things at the West Coast Conference. She you is, know, yeah. it, it, it's tough to compare the Rooney Rule and the Russell Rule. Okay. And that kind of going back to a previous question, at the end of the day, if it's just the DEI person driving the bus on wanting equity and diversity and inclusion, you're not going to get very far. It's the idea of it has to be that top-down leadership that's going to promote this as a priority. And so as I think about the NFL and the, the Rooney rule, it's I think that the framework and structure of it is right. And it's really well designed to make substantive changes. But at the end of the day, it starts with the owners. And yeah. so unless the ownership group comes out and says, no, this is a priority for us, you know, the best intended policy just isn't going to work. And so as I shift over to the Russell rule, I see a group of engaged athletics directors and presidents who want to make substantial changes. At the end of the day, and Gloria would tell you, she works really on behalf of the ADs and the presidents of her league. And so to make some sort of change like the Russell rule, it had to come from those individuals at the highest position. And so I see that as in and of itself a good sign that this kind of program can be successful. The other component of that is making sure that folks have an opportunity to be at the table. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the story regarding Tony Dungy when he initially interviewed for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You know, they were pretty transparent with him that, hey, we kind of brought you in as a minority candidate. And he knew coming into it that, hey, they're probably just bringing me in for this, but I still want the opportunity. And sure enough, he got to the table and everyone at that table went, Oh my goodness. Yeah. We, we found him. Yeah. This is amazing. We, like we didn't heart emojis everywhere. Love you. <laughs> exactly. And so what I view the Russell rule as doing is providing opportunities to individuals who have the qualifications, who have the skill set, and just giving them opportunity to be at the table and sell what they have yeah. to take on that role. And I think that in and of itself is a positive, but also coupling it with some of these job interviews, when you talk about head coaching roles, commissioners, AD roles, those are very different interviews than your entry level position yeah. at a athletics department. And so it takes a certain level of skill set to even take on those interviews. And so I love the idea of gaining exposure. So even for an individual who is brought to the table, who ultimately does not get that position, they get the chance to be around head coaches, athletics directors, presidents, and learn how to be within those circles and what to look for and what to look out for, which then means the next time one of those opportunities presents them that themselves, they'll have that opportunity to hopefully position themselves to take on the role. And so, I mean, we'll see soon, hopefully, the results of this first year of having the Russell rule. But I feel pretty confident that this sort of change, if made more broadly, could have that transformational change that we want to see within the staffing and coaching ranks in college athletics. I love it. I'm so happy to hear you say that because for me, I always think about, you know, you, you always tie decisions to results, but sometimes mm-hmm. it's like, it's not that clear, right? So you look at the Rudy rule and you're like, did it work? But you're right. There's a lot of little stories of people getting opportunities or getting moments to impress that led to other opportunities. And the idea of the, the Russell rule of changing the levels of that discussion. So it's not just head coaches, it's athletic directors, et cetera. There's other positions being evaluated in that. With that all in mind, a 2021 report from the Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sports cited that 81% 
of athletic director positions were held by white people. This goes to the, like you said, and like I've said, the top decision makers, the owners in a sense, like can change really happen if it doesn't start there with those with the power to make decisions? Yeah. And, you know, I'm very familiar and appreciative of Dr. Richard Lapchek's work with Tides. And I mean, I think it's done a great job of publicly exposing some of the areas where we haven't necessarily been held accountable as an industry within college athletics for being diverse. And so I think your question is a good one in that I think you can have change without that top-down leadership, but that change is going to be very slow and it's not going to be as consistent as it could be. You know, what sticks out to me about that report, aside from there being a lack of diversity within athletics director's position is if you look at the presidencies, there's a lack of diversity in that space as well. And so, yep. you know, it. I can't say that it's causation, but we can at least say that it's correlation for yep. sure. And so yep. making sure that we have individuals at the highest level who are sitting at the president's seat, who are also, and this is an element that we don't talk about a lot within the college athletic spaces, within the board of trustees. These yeah. different groups were in charge of making sure the fluid operation of, an af- of a university and who hired the president who are bringing in these highest positions and having to approve them, we also need their buy-in as well. And so without that, it's really difficult to make that substantial change. Now, with that said, if we, for example, if one of your listeners at a university or is in a setting where, hey, this isn't a priority for our leadership, there are lots of examples where there have been grassroots efforts to make changes. We think about DEI and it's probably most fundamental place where we had really a fight for civil rights within our country, this wasn't the government making these substantial changes. These were regular individuals who had a vision and who saw things as not necessarily they were, but as they could be fighting to make sure that that happens. And so for those individuals who are at universities that it's, hey, the leadership isn't showing me this change, you can be the change yourself. Know that it's going to be frustrating because you won't have that ease of, okay, I'll just write a new policy and that'll change things. But that doesn't mean that you can't be effective. Uh, It's a beautiful point. I'm so glad you brought that up. And it is true. It's like we all have the power to come together, to make decisions, to affect change. It's like I've heard people say before, like every time you go to a store, you're basically voting with what you purchase. Mm. It's the same thing with your everyday actions. You're voting with or making decisions or influencing change based on your actions. And so we all do have some semblance of power to affect those changes that matter. So I got really frustrated recently on a personal level. Um, I read a report that Iowa head coach Kirk Ferentz, uh, the football head coach, disbanded a group that was created in 2020 after there was an investigation on campus alleging that there was unfair treatment of black players. So they conduct an investigation. They determine that there is unfair treatment of black players. And they create a group to help to monitor and keep an eye on things. It brings in alumni. It brings in different uh, stakeholders to the organization. And then quietly last month in 2022, Kirk Ferentz disbands this group and just doesn't happen anymore. Thankfully, because of journalism, it, it wasn't quiet. People did talk about it, which is awesome. I love that. I'm not asking you to comment on that situation. That wouldn't be fair. You're not intricately involved in that. But I will ask you this. In college athletics, do head football coaches have too much power? Hmm. That's an interesting question. You know, that's a tough one to answer in that I I think if you look at any industry, and we'll use college athletics to kind of be the foundation for this, 
it's no secret. The revenue comes in from football and basketball. Yeah. It's across the board. You look at division one, two, three, whatever the case may be. If there's revenue to be made, it's within those particular sports. And so as with any industry, if you're the area that brings the most money, that's generally where the power tends to flow in. And so I don't want to pick on football coaches as, hey, they have too much power. What I will say is this really comes down to the character of the individual that you're bringing in to run your program. You know, there's nothing wrong with an individual having a significant amount of power. It's what do they do with that power? Are they someone? Yeah, yeah, I've worked with a number of coaches, many of which have very large salaries, have a lot of power. But at the end of the day, they don't want to wield that power. They want to come in and provide a good opportunity for young people and allow for their programs to be a positive light within the university setting. And so unfortunately, there are countless cases of individuals who aren't doing that and who are doing things that are, I don't want to say of a nefarious nature, but are things that are not going to rock the boat and are going to make things easier for them to keep on doing things the way that they've done them. And so I don't think it's necessarily that football coaches have too much power by any means. I think it's that we got to be very careful when we're bringing in individuals who a lot of the time are your highest paid employees within the state you got to make sure that person has solid character and that they're going to be doing things that are consistent with the mission of your university, your athletics department. There's that old saying in higher education, money follows the mission. And so if we're going to make an individual the highest paid state employee, let's make sure that they're really about the mission, not only of the athletics department, but of the university and more broadly of really all of our priorities as a society. Yeah, it's a holistic approach. It's not just the X's and O's. It's how they manage their entire portfolio of power and, and how they interact with the community and how they lead the people around them. It is. It's a it's such an important perspective to have. On a more personal level, you've been in the sports industry for a while. You talked a little bit about your past history before coming to the University of Delaware. From your personal perspective, is our industry becoming more inclusive? Yeah, from my personal perspective, I think it is. Uh, admittedly, I would love for things to move faster, but I think yeah. there are a lot of areas that we can point to that, yeah, we're getting more inclusive. It's taken a lot of time and a lot of progress, but we're getting to a place where we're starting to see more diversity within all the ranks of college athletics. I think one of the things that I'm really, I'd want to say, uh, I guess, encouraged by is the increase in it being a focus across the board for search firms. Mm. You know, one of the elements that's not discussed a lot is when you look at these highest level positions within college athletics, most of these aren't handled internally necessarily. They're working with search firms to try and bring in individuals who are going to be great candidates. You know, one of the areas that's recently popped up is uh, this new website called Connect, where it uses uh, the power of having the search firms backing along with just the openness of the internet to bring in diverse candidates to the table who might not have otherwise been there. As an example, most universities aren't going to go out and hire a search firm to hire an assistant director of marketing. That just wouldn't be a great use of funds. What this Connect website does is say, hey, Chris Brown as a candidate can upload his profile. It can highlight his demographics as a black male, can highlight his previous experiences. And then when an AD really wants to be intentional about hiring, let's say a person of color, they can go into this site and start to take a look and whittle down what they're looking for and identify candidates who might not have gotten an opportunity to be at the table and bring them to the table. And so, you know, that just launched last month. And that's something that even five or six years ago, I could not have imagined. And so I think there are a lot of cool areas to look at that we're making change. But the important thing is, as individuals who are in particular in roles like mine, 
we got to keep capitalizing and pushing on that change to not say that, oh, well, we have this connect website. We're good. Well, no, we got to push it out there. We got to get uh, candidates into that portal so we can get them onto campus and get the exposure that's rightfully deserved. So I, I think we're making the change. It just isn't necessarily as fast as I think the majority of us would want who are doing this work. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. I, I, I'm adding it to our product roadmap for work in sports because that sounds like a really great plan they have there with Connect. So that's impressive and that's really smart to do. We'll finish up with this. I'm so appreciative of your time. This has been an amazing conversation. I want to be respectful of your time as well. Uh, put on your future hat. Like we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, 10 years ago, we weren't talking about DE&I. It wasn't a co- commonplace term. Now it is. There's decisions like the Russell Rule. There's impacts being made across the industry. It's all progress. It's all good. What do you see happening over the next 10 years to move us further down the path toward equity and inclusion? Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, there was a little bit of a lull in terms of, let's say, student athlete activism for a while there. You know, there were a lot of years where you can point to the Muhammad Ali's, Lulal Senders, yeah. uh, these individuals who were both athletes but wanted to make substantive change within society. And so for a while there, that kind of stopped. And it we did, didn't. Yeah. Yeah, we just really didn't have athletes being advocates. Well, I think if you think back to the summer of 2020 with the murder of George Floyd, we yep. really saw student athletes once again taking that advocacy role and going, well, I know that I'm helping to bring in revenue to a university. I know that I have this great media exposure. I'm going to leverage my platforms to be the change that I want to see. And so I, I think while that primarily was done via Twitter, via kind of more grassroots efforts, there's going to come a time where the top athletes in this country are going to look and go, okay, school, I've been looking at these five universities. They all have these amazing arenas. They all have this great weight room. They all have these things that I'm supposed to be attracted to, but well, what are you doing for DEI? You know, something that's important to me is being able to be an advocate. What have you been doing as a university to move this change forward? And if you can't answer that question, then the top prospects aren't going to go to that university. And so I see DEI as being an integral part of the future and the advancement of college athletics in that it's going to become an expectation. It's not a, hey, we had this bad incident happen. Now we're going to hire someone. It's no, we've had a person in place for the last 15 years. Here are our wins. And now we're also, as a department, really transparent about where we're lacking and what we need to do to move that needle forward. And so I see DEI as being that game changer in the next 10, 15 years and really being that decider on whether or not a top prospect will even consider going to an institution. It's it makes so much sense. You know, you think of a lot of times we talk about the downsides of something like social media. There's a lot of anger that happens there and there's a lot of angst that happens there and there's a lot of, you know, social pressures and whatever. And there's, you know, it's just bad things that happen there. But it has grown the influence of a lot of these athletes that are saying, wow, I have an audience directly right here. I can influence change right now. And I can use my voice and get but get my thoughts and feelings out there. And that has you it almost like activated them in that regard. Because I do remember growing up in the 90s, Michael Jordan wasn't talking about this stuff. Yeah. You know, a lot of the athletes, Randall Cunningham wasn't talking about this stuff. There were a lot of athletes that weren't really diving into these subjects. And now you get so many more who are active. And, and maybe that's helping. Maybe the social media aspect is helping build their influence and confidence in that regard. Growing up that way, uh, it's just so interesting to see how that happens. And to think of DEI as a differentiator is so important as well. I mean, we talk about things like names, image, and likeness. We talk about arenas. We talk about facilities. But you're right. I mean, the attitude of an organization, especially in college athletics, towards DEI and their actual processes and their actual wins. I hope that continues to be a differentiator for organizations. And I hope that becomes more and more important in that decision-making matrix 
for college athletics, for college athletes when they decide where they're going to go next. It makes so much sense. A hundred percent. You know, and I'll use one local example. I mean, the CEA just announced that we're going to be bringing in three new institutions, one of which is Hampton University, which is a historically black college and university, which means as a conference, we're one of the few uh, predominantly white dominated conferences that has a historically black college as a part of our membership now. And so it's this idea that, hey, we need to go back and fix some of these transgressions that we've had in the past. And by doing so, who knows what the opportunities are going to be for us as a conference, us as an institution, for our student athletes who are now going to be competing against a historically black college to get a different level of exposure. And so that's going to be something that I imagine prospects and their parents are going to be looking to go, well, that's a cool experience. That's a different experience that'll help you transcend when you leave the university setting. Chris, I have loved this conversation. Thank you so much for jumping in. Your insight and just your passion for this part of your story in college athletics and the potential to continue growing and building out the university athletic program and in the right way is just is so motivating. And I know our audience will really appreciate hearing from you. So thank you so much for your insight today. Hey, happy to do it. And Brian, thank you for doing this podcast. As someone who stumbled his way into the sport industry, <laughs> having the cheat codes, if you will, on the front end, yeah. it's really cool. And I hope that your listeners really take to heart what you're doing. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you to Dr. Chris Brown for coming on the show. He wanted me to call him Chris. I will call him Chris, but I feel like there's a need to throw in that doctor because he's earned it. And so I'm going to say it, Dr. Chris Brown, at my own mater. I am an alumni of the University of Delaware, and I was really excited when Chad Tuaro from our team said, hey, I got a guy I think could be a great guest. And he's a senior associate athletic director at University of Delaware with the E&I. And just to know that more and more schools and more and more organizations are putting these positions in high-ranking roles with power to make decisions and influence change, I think gives us a lot of hope for the progress continuing into the future the way we all hope it will. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for being here as part of our audience. It means the world to me. So please continue to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. It will help us grow and that's important to all of us. So thank you so much.